Hi, I'm Dr. Scott. And I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. And today, our episode is on the forensic psych topic of sexual sadism. Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Shiloh, I don't think we have a whole bunch of housekeeping today. I mean, we did. No. I finally got my my stuff together and got the, the sure? mailing out, our huge mailing. <laughs> oh, that's right. We sent some surprise stickers to Patreon members. Um, and if you're listening and you have not updated your address, please do, because I've gotten some returned and just shoot us a message and let us know that you did that and we'll get them back out to you. But yeah, I think not much. We need to pick a date for our next watch party, which we want to do maybe oh, yeah. this month or next month. So yeah, just watch for our social media on that. Also, you can also jump on our link tree. I'll put a, a link in the, the show notes here just so you guys have it. And that always has upcoming stuff on it with a direct link of how you can get all the information. So we decided to do Sunset Boulevard, which kind of wraps up all of our different topics in one, <laughs> really, when you're looking at something right. that's like a duh, we should have done this a long time ago. But before we get to our episode today, just remember that last episode was episode 157. It was our documentary review on the Thin Blue Line, where we went back to the 1988 original true crime wrongful conviction documentary definitely one you need to watch if you've never seen it and watch it again if you have seen it. And we also take the time to review the history of the term thin blue line along with the symbolism and how that has, I guess, evolved is not the right word. It's it's a word. <laughs> but where it, it lies today, unfortunately, in the hands of people that are not using it as a term of pride and honor. And that happens sometimes. So we review why that is in our episode from last week. So this week, introducing a, a very, very serious topic, one of the cornerstones of, of understanding, uh, you know, first we had the dark triad, then we had to add in this particular stool leg to the dark tetrad. That's yep. the tetrad. Yeah. And we've done a couple of guest interviews on other shows lately that have focused on this area of sexual sadism. And we know that not all of our listeners get a chance to listen to those other shows, which is understandable. I feel like we've not only are we research whores, we're kind of interview whores too, right. but it's it's wonderful to be asked to do these things. It's also a great opportunity. And we hope that you can check them out when you get a moment. A list of all those guest interviews can be found on the spotlight page of our website. So we thought we would talk more thoroughly about this topic here. And to do that, we're going to look back at some other concepts that we covered in the past. But first, we need to lay the foundation or review the foundation of paraphilic disorder that Dr. Shiloh went over so many episodes ago <laughs> and probably our, our first few months yeah. of, of episodes, really, because you have to really understand paraphilic disorder before we can get more specifically and directly into sexual sadism. Right. So just with our late trigger warning here today, I mean, obviously, the topic sounds very heavy and it is. So we will talk about murder with torture elements, sexual assault, and serial sexual assault ending in murder today, we have refrained from going into gory details. That is in other podcasts. You can certainly look that up on your own. We might refer to something, but we're not going to get into all of the nitty gritty of, you know, breaking down a particular case, perhaps. We're keeping this quite clinical today. Yeah, I think it's important. Sometimes the the details are are necessary. Mm -hmm. Next week in our vintage episode, we actually will be circling back around to a couple of points about sexual sadism, but without going too deeply into the descriptions. And, you know, we encourage all of our listeners, you know, to be judicial in what you take into your system. Yeah. You know, agree. take into your energy, take into your psyche, your emotional regulation system, and an understanding of what makes people do the things they do is not necessarily requiring you to know all the details of how the crimes well were committed. So let's just start with the diagnostic criteria. I promise you we're going to go through this and make it interesting. It's not <laughs> not going to be. <laughs> One of our dear, dear listeners and Patreon members was like, oh, clinical episode, pass. <laughs> 
<laughs> which I totally get, but we're going to make it more palatable to you this week, I promise. So starting with diagnostic criteria, paraphilic disorder is the clinical diagnostic term that meets the following points of criteria. Sexual activities that revolve around themes of objects or non-human animals, humiliation, or non-consenting persons. So that's point one. Point two is any intense and in some areas or some moments preferential and persistent sexual interest over a period of at least six months that a person experiences recurrent, intense, sexually arousing fantasies and sexual urges or behavior. And third point, the individual generally needs to have acted out on it or it causes significant distress to the person in order to be diagnosed. That's that's really wordy and dense yeah. right there, but that's sort of, if we break it down well, let me just use a, a silly example here to illustrate that last point that you that, that we made. Someone can be sexually attracted to trees, which is called dendrophilia, and it doesn't cause any problems for them. Or in contrast, they have significant distress in their lives because all of their friends think that it's weird, or maybe they suffer from depression from not being able to act on it or because, or perhaps they have medical needs due to use like a kind of out there, but not too surprising example, they might have chafing or self-injury from rubbing up against a tree. Yeah. We're not exaggerating. That's a real thing. It does happen. Right. So they hit that first criteria in that their sexual activity revolves around a certain object. <laughs> there is this intense sexual interest in it. And then here with your example, they're showing some distress because of social issues or medical issues, what have you. So um, I also, I also like that in your creation of the outline of this, that mm -hmm. in that first point, when we talk about consent and this is kind of gets out there for many people, but as we have more and more understanding of the immense spectrum of types of intelligence and consciousness in the animals that we inhabit this world with. Right. We're realizing like, there are some people that go, well, why would I need consent from an animal? Well, yep. because they're way more conscious beings than any of us have ever given credit to. And I'm not saying that as a, a vegan, I'm, I'm someone that's, you know, I'm an omnivore, but mm -hmm. you know, this is, this is where some of that like mental gymnastics will come into play. Yeah. Well, it's definitely. not hurting anybody. Right. <laughs> no, that's not quite accurate. Right. Right. Which is, is a valuable point because a lot of these that would be pathological disorders, if they were sexual interests that were fed by consenting partners, if you will, then that's a way in which we could cut down on creating victims or, you know, sort of this harm reduction. But sometimes the that non-consenting piece is the piece that turns them on. So yeah. an exhibitionist surprising someone who had not consented to right. seeing what they're seeing is part of the sexual arousal. So, you know, just in that with a partner that is agreeing to it doesn't have the same effect. So does that have anything to do with what you were sharing with me a couple of years ago? You went to a conference and you were talking about the algorithms used in porn. So people that are doing porn sites and certain types of pornography has been educated by what people get turned on by the most. And one of the biggest reactions is for people looking surprised, like they're surprised at the size of their partner's genitalia or right. they're surprised at being penetrated. Like, so they have this big, almost like childlike surprise look on their face. Right. I, I think I would say not exactly that it goes more to, especially because, you know, one, we're talking about pornography and just what someone's looking at in the their own privacy. But when you're talking about interacting with another person, it does come back to that power and control of like, right. I have totally disrupted your day in a way that you never thought was going to happen today. And just that power over someone else is certainly an element there, even in something like exhibitionism. We use the term paraphilia or paraphilic disorder basically to differentiate from healthy sexual alternatives. And it's generally a situation in which it's pathological because obviously sexual deviance is subjective. <laughs> Something we talked about ad nauseum when working with sexual offenders and trying to understand people's sexual interests, which is so, so wide and diverse. And in the DSM, we have the following specific paraphilic disorders outlined because we can't just list them all. <laughs> with all the hundreds of identified paraphilic disorders. So we go with the most egregious or those that 
end up crossing paths with clinical services most often. So we have pedophilic disorder, we have sexual sadism disorder, sexual masochism disorder, voyeuristic disorder, exhibitionistic disorder, fetishistic disorder, which is sexual attraction to inanimate objects or focus on usually like a non-genital body part. And then we have frauderistic disorder, transvestic disorder, and multiple can be found in a person, but usually one is dominant. And I think we've said that before in other episodes where you find one, there's usually two others. So the research really says that it sort of clusters in three, but typically there is a dominant disorder there. So again, those are just the ones outlined. There is a catch-all paraphilic disorder, not otherwise specified category where, you know, something like the sexual attraction to trees, we could throw that in there if it was hitting those criteria that you outlined at the top. It's very common for sexual offenders that their behaviors will circulate around the type of offense. So again, exhibitionism, pedophilia, hebophilia, sexual sadism, which if you notice, all of those are illegal if you act out on them. And there's other types of paraphilic disorders, necrophilia, cannibalism, necrosadism. I mean, the worst of the worst things that you guys think about when we hear these really horrific cases, they do fall under a category that is in the the DSM where we can look at these things. And again, this is like a question you and I get all the time on different podcasts when people are looking to us is like, what level of insanity or crazy is this? And this is how we end up starting to break it down, of course, with other things, but this is kind of in that realm of the sexual behavior. However, I, I think that I should note that sexual crimes are most often perpetrated by opportunistic and situational offenders who may not meet a criteria for a paraphilic disorder. So just isolating that as an example for a second, if we look at crimes against children, the majority of crimes against children are not perpetrated by people that would meet the criteria for pedophilic disorder. So we're talking about someone with the opportunity and being put in the situation and having a lot of risk factors going on that really don't pair up with a full-blown paraphilic disorder. So when we look at deviant sexual interests, there are two ways in which research considers the etiology or the emergence of the disorders. So certainly there's this idea that certain individuals are quote unquote born with it. Like we have some biological basis for this argument, specifically with pedophilic disorder, and either they know it from a very early age or the deviant sexual interest needs to be woken up at some point, perhaps with some exposure to that type of pornographic material. We also know that an individual can condition the sexual deviancy within themselves. This can happen when they pair sexual arousal with a particular stimulus at an integral age of development, like puberty being the major one, right? So think of Richard Ramirez being shown sexually violent images at age 13 by his cousin, and then going with his brother-in-law to engage in peeping in women's windows. That's a prime sexual development period, and it's being paired with a deviant stimuli. And also that was in part of a, a toxic and malignant mess mixture of so many other factors as well and that's how you that's how you get a richard ramirez right i mean it can also be done later in life with repeated exposure to the deviant stimuli by pairing it with sexual arousal most likely masturbation right the only good thing about this scenario is that classic extinction techniques can assist in undoing this pairing of the sexual arousal with that particular stimuli yeah so if you've practiced bad, or if you've practiced sexual habits to deviant material, you can remove that deviant material, sort of, you know, rewire your body and your brain to then- Which is amazing, right? Practice like, habits to good material. Yeah, Exactly. That's cognitive behavioral therapy. You can do a lot of that work with a therapist. You can do cognitive behavioral exercises on your own for a wide spectrum of issues in your life. Yeah. I think this is one of those things- you know, when, when we were in our internship and we finally started learning 
how, how should I say this? How ineffective sexual offender treatment can be, how it's not like, it doesn't have these wild, amazing success rates. There's a moment for every therapist that works in that realm where you got to go, well, then why the hell am I doing this? (laughs) So I think this was one of those things that I was able to latch onto to go, okay, if there's a good deal of people who are working with a deviancy that they have built up, there's actually a way we can undo this. And again, like lower the risk for recidivism. So, but sexual sadism is a paraphilic disorder. So let's get into it. And then we will circle back to how this relates to some of the worst of the worst offenders. So sexual sadism is characterized by taking pleasure from humiliation, fear, or another form of mental harm to a person. Sadistic acts can include restraint, such as ropes, chains, or handcuffs, imprisonment, biting, spanking, whipping, beating, other forms of torture as well. And when someone repeatedly practices these sadistic sexual acts without consent from their partners, or when sadistic fantasies or behaviors cause social, professional, or other functional problems, sexual sadism disorder may be diagnosed. So at that point, that's when it is certainly problematic. Now, just side note, of course, someone can have a non-disordered, quote unquote, healthy sexual sadism about them and their interests. So healthy sexual activity can include a wide variety of behaviors and activities, including sadism when it's not causing distress in yourself or to someone else. In other words, when this is consensual, the majority of individuals who are active in the BDSM community or in relationships do not express any dissatisfaction with their sexual interests. And therefore their behavior would not meet the criteria for sexual sadism disorder. In fact, many who engage in BDSM within the context of romantic relationships report that it brings them closer to their partners because it builds increased feelings of trust that result from setting and then respecting boundaries, as well as the emotional safety that's built up from being able to explore you know, less conventional sexual interests without judgment. And they, you know, so they, they find their people. Yeah. <laughs> they do that in a, in a way that I'm sure for them was a really difficult period of time, not being able to express that until they do find their partners or their people. So just, I, I wanted to, to get that in there a little bit before we move on, but let's look at some breakdown of statistics here. When we look at sexual sadism and sexual offending, So only about two to 5% of sexual offenders, the big umbrella of sexual offenders would qualify to be sexual sadists. The majority of them, about 87% of sexual sadists offend against other adults. And then when we look at this topic that you and I have talked about, whenever we've touched on any sort of sexual offender typology, the, the cognitive piece of what helps drive them are these cognitive distortions. So the cognitive distortions of sexual sadists can mimic what some other offenders think, but there's also one where if they view their victim as all bad or evil or sick or perverted themselves, then they talk themselves into saying, well, then they deserve this. So additionally, we see some of the more common cognitive distortions that we see in rapists in general, where we see them really objectifying women as just sex objects only. And that's going to take us into our next discussion about pairing sexual sadism with other psychopathologies, because when you start pairing this with other things, that's when it gets really dangerous. So let's just pull us up to speed so far. We've talked about, we started with the foundation of paraphilic disorder, mm-hmm. and then we've moved into sexual sadism, and we're differentiating that very carefully from healthy participation in BDSM activities or BDSM community. Just want to make sure that all of our listeners understand the distinction between that, because now we're moving into the combination of sexual sadism and psychopathy, which is really dangerous, by the way. It can be, when you combine sadism and trade of antisocial personality disorder, or more seriously, you know, sort of psychopathy. I mean, sociopathy to the nth degree is psychopathy. So if you recall, ASPD includes traits like poor impulse control, dishonesty, and a significant lack of empathy and remorse. And then psychopathy is a combination of traits that include both behaviors like living a parasitic lifestyle, pathological lying, impulsive behaviors, along with their affect or presentation 
qualities like superficial charm, glibness, callous, conning, cunning, manipulative. Some researchers like to distinguish between sex murderers and lust murderers, wherein sex murderers kill their victims to silence them out of a fear of being caught and lust murderers kill as part of their sexual fantasy. A lust murder is a homicide in which the offender searches for erotic satisfaction by killing someone. Lust murder is synonymous with the paraphilic term erotophonophilia, which is sexual arousal or gratification that is contingent on the death of a human being. So when we look at fantasy, when it comes to sex crimes and serial murders, we have to note that sexual fantasies can be progressive, where it begins with sexual assaults that then increase in severity of violence or sadistic tendencies. And in some even rare cases, eventually it will progress to killing. A lust murderer may perform various sexual acts before, during, and after the victim is killed, where the rape is just one part of the sexual acting out for them. Fantasy is a key component to any paraphilia, whether it's legal, illegal, or otherwise. Yeah, so you can see we're very quickly building up here to talking about serial killers, serial sexual offending. And for as long as this has been studied, you can get probably that many different typologies. Yeah, and <laughs> so... they still create them too, which yes. I... I feel like that muddies the water because someone maybe with some background or, you know, a citizen detective or somebody that does some, you know, what would be considered pretty good research on their own decides that they're going to coin a new term. And that's a little problematic. Well, it is, especially if there's no new research to right. kind of point that out. So like I'm all for calling things you know, something different if you have a reason to. So a lot of this information I'm taking today is from Dr. Eric Hickey's book on serial killers, which is good. I mean, Dr. Hickey was the dean of my graduate school. So we worked together on some projects and he really has a, a lovely book that lays a lot of this out that is older, but it it holds up certainly because of, you know, what you were just talking about. So I'm just going to very, very quickly run over the typologies of serial sexual murders that he lists in his book, because I think they make sense. I think they don't overlap too much in a way that is just sort of unnecessary. And then we're going to go on to more of going back to kind of that formation, the different models that people start to weave in these issues of sexual sadism and psychopathy when we're looking at how does a serial killer form, essentially. So with our typologies of serial sexual murders, we have visionary. So <laughs> visionary sounds like a really like, hey, this person's a visionary. We think of that as a good trait. But this is someone who is experiencing psychosis and there are command hallucinations involved in which they think that they have to kill. So this one may have a sexual element to it, but it also may not. There's also mission-oriented, and basically their thought pattern is, it is my mission to rid society of certain groups of people. So again, I think this is one that could have a sexual ele element to it, or it maybe it doesn't. You know, they're out there sort of taking the lives of people that they think need to just be gone from this world. And then we get to hedonistic. So these are your thrill seekers who derive satisfaction from the hunt, from the kill. And that is where all of their offending frenzy is wrapped up. And then lastly, we have power and control. So this is where the primary source of pleasure is the killer's ability to control and exert power over a helpless victim. And there is most certainly a sexual element usually involved here. So looking at the different models as to the formation of a serial killer beyond what we've already covered, there is the motivation model. So this is was actually developed by Anne Burgess out of her work with the behavioral analysis unit. And it has a couple of points here that I, I want to review. So what she calls ineffective social environment. So this is the basis of where this person was born and raised. 
And there was essentially a lack of healthy family interactions and structure that could describe a lot of people. Again, we're not moving forwards from that, saying that everyone in this situation would be susceptible. But as we look at these people, we're finding these risk factors that are similar in each of their backgrounds. I love that you pick that particular point out and then you expanded on it because in my education and training as a marriage and family therapist, one of the things, you know, we were as a, at the master's level doing clinical work, like with family, you know, you're educated in developmental issues with kids. And what's the studies all show is that kids can come from highly averse backgrounds that are not supportive at all. But if they have one positive adult yep. mentor interaction, and that doesn't even have to be a real person, if they identify with a TV character that is positive, warm, and loving, if they identify with a literary character or a comic book character that has these pro-social qualities, that can be the thing that absolutely gives them a perspective that like my current upbringing is completely fakakta, but moving forward, I can be like Superman. I can be like the flash. I can be like wonder woman, or I can be like, you know, one of the characters on my favorite TV show. Yeah. We're, we're seeing that now in the research is with potential school shooters, Right. same thing. Yes. Same exact thing. So yeah, great, great point. So then she moves on to say that the formative developmental years are obviously really important as well. So generally with people who go on to be serial sexual murderers, that there's going to be sort of, you know, this, this is where it, it takes a hard right, where we're starting to see a smaller and smaller population that are now being exposed or victims of their own trauma. Or maybe it's just negative social, what she calls negative social attachment or deviant parental modeling. So you're, we're, we're starting to narrow, you know, the kids that might have the lack of healthy family interactions. And now we're implementing trauma into the mix as well as not being, it doesn't say whether it's not being able to attach socially or that it's just not available for them. So I'm going to say, let's say it's either or. Um, but then she moves on to say, then we start to see these patterned responses in their personality traits, along with cognitive distortions starting to form. So if we're moving through the formative years here, we're going back to fantasy. You said fantasy was a key element in all of this. And she agrees. Fantasy is huge for these guys. A lot of the manifestation of the paraphilia is in the fantasy. And again, this is a really, really strong cognitive piece that indulges the compulsion to eventually act out. And the repetitive imagery then leads to what she calls assaultive conduct and helps solidify those personality traits, perhaps like psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder, along with the conditioned response and the cognitive distortions about themselves or about the victim. So you can almost see how this is like being molded and shaped into the things that you and I have talked about already. And then once that is happening, and once perhaps there are behaviors that are acted out on, there's this feedback filter where the cognitive distortions are now revolving around justifying the acts to themselves. So you have acted out, and then maybe there is some feeling of like, even for themselves, like, oh shit, I'm going to get caught, even if the remorse isn't there for the victim. And then they justify it to themselves. So maybe that's where it starts forming. We were talking earlier about this person deserved it, or they needed to be rid of this world. And then the loop starts again with increased arousal states, increased urges for dominance and control. And it just kind of starts all over. So then there are actions towards self and others that she points out where you see in other areas of their life, because like with personality disorders, we know it's not just in one environment. The antisocial behavior comes out, the disregard for others, everything across the board with people they come in contact with to, of course, include also the sexual acting out and the offending and eventually the murder. So it's you're saying it generalizes. Right. You're saying that like this, it's 
there's going to be an antisocial flag being waved in uh, several other areas of life. Yeah, definitely. Unless, you know, they are trying not to show it. And when you get to the the smaller percentages of psychopaths that are really good at, at not showing that or of living double lives, right? They're they're able to use that pathological lying and that glibness and that charm to just show a completely different face somewhere else. But there will be little pieces that come out. You know, maybe it's in their business that people talk about, you know, what a snake they were or how cunning they were when it came to jobs. And that's a piece of how we score the hair psychopathy checklist is we're looking at all different areas of their life, not just this, you know, one way in which they engage with victims. So then there's also the trauma control model. So this is developed by Dr. Eric Hickey, and he focuses more on a developmental framework. He focuses on the trauma, particularly in formative years, along with some predispositional factors. So again, more like how we've come to know what makes up a psychopath these days. So looking at biological bases, as well as that severe childhood trauma that they've likely been exposed to. And he also says that fantasy plays a large part for this model to work. And he believes that this comes out of low self-esteem paired with the increase in violent fantasies. So again, little flavors of power and control trying to be gained back for this person. And then eventual homicidal behavior leads to reinforcing the trauma that kicked it all off. And again, we see a cyclical effect here. So Hickey's classification system, he breaks down, again, I know this is a lot of typologies, you guys, nonviolent, physical, nonviolent, non-physical, and then sadistic, masochistic, and sadomasochistic. And he says that sadists are most relevant to serial homicide. And then lastly, there's the integrative paraphilic model, similar to the above two models, but again, focusing on paraphilic development, heavy, heavy use of fantasy and stimuli to satisfy that paraphilia. And that it really looks at the fact that there is a stressor that triggers the fantasy as part of their coping mechanism. So this is something that Scott and I would target in therapy with sexual offenders is Are they soothing themselves when they get stressed out or they get upset or they get depressed with deviant sexual fantasy or deviant sexual acting out or just sex in general? I mean, you need more tools in your toolbox than sex when you get stressed. And if that is the thing that's making you feel better and it happens to be deviant, then that's certainly not something that you want to start pairing together. And so also leading to the last point of the integrated paraphilic model is that you're then pairing orgasmic conditioning to the violent behaviors and that can eventually lead to needing more and more and for it to happen in real life, which would be committing a murder that is sexually motivated. So lastly, we just wanted to put all this together into something that we explored when we looked at the research in our online trolls episode. The unique psychological makeup of online trolls as one step beyond the dark triad was the dark tetrad. And that is the combination of psychopathy, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and sadism. And Dr. Evita March is a top researcher in this area. She's a senior lecturer and researcher of psychology at Federation University Australia. Essentially, the literature is broad when it comes to personality traits of trolls, but let's look at these for a minute. So here are the traits of those four diagnoses that some people seem to believe contribute to this online trolling behavior. Machiavellianism falls into a similar category as psychopathy in that it is something that we know is a thing, although not as robustly as psychopathy. And there are some measurement tools for it, but bottom line, it's not a diagnosable disorder. Machiavellianism is more about how the person communicates with the world around them to get these needs met and their willingness to deceive and most importantly, to manipulate others. Very key point there, manipulation. Yeah. So in all of this emerging research, the most powerful predictor of trolling behavior was sadism. That Mm. was the special little ingredient thrown in there. And with that population, this indicates that the more someone enjoys inflicting pain, whether emotional or physical on others, the more likely it is that that person will troll given the opportunity and the means. And I promise we will 
bring this all together to what we're talking about today. But there was research conducted out of Canada that looked at the online behavior of individuals and also administered some personality tests with those folks. And the results showed that those who said trolling was their favorite or most common online behavior had the highest scores on the dark tetrad scales. And the research went on to say, quote, in fact, the associations between sadism and gate scores were so strong that it might be said that online trolls are prototypical everyday sadists. They also drew the conclusion that both trolls and sadists feel sadistic glee at the distress of others. Powerful and really, I wish was more of a conversation about how much of our society lives in an online virtual world, you know? Yeah, I think it will be. uh, We just really need to promote this as a discussion point, I think. But why do we bring it up here in this? Because this is something that we discussed with Chris over on the LISC podcast in terms of offenders who inflicted that unnecessary and perhaps prolonged psychological pain on their victims. For instance, we know that the Long Island serial killer, whoever that is, there's an alleged (laughs) individual now, but whoever it is made sadistic phone calls to the sister of one of his victims inflicting a kind of trauma on her. I mean, it's, it's much like, it's, it's no different from any other kind of trauma. Additionally, there is some evidence that in that case, he kept his victims alive for periods of time indicating that sadistic side of his nature that needed to inflict more psychological pain and torment. Yeah. So, I mean, we're almost getting an idea of someone who engages in more pain and torture and keeping someone alive longer to suffer is what really we're getting down to here. And there are so many infamous cases that we could choose from, cases that have been overtold and really don't need any more glorification. So let's just give a rundown on a couple that seem to really fit the mold of having a truly sexually sadistic element, not making any diagnoses on these folks, but really just kind of giving you a a quick overview and then describing why, but not in detail, why this all fits with our topic today. I know. I love that you framed it that way, but the, the ironic thing is that the example that we're starting off with is one that would be the easiest to diagnose because there is so much family history on this guy and this is not this has been done in another couple of podcasts but which (laughs) (laughs) that particular podcast you loved it i couldn't stand it i mean the story is absolutely fascinating oh yeah i did not like the i would much rather you guys listen to crawl spaces episode on this because i think it's more interesting but we're talking about the individual that we were interviewed and consulted with, Lance and Tim's on Crawl Space, about Dean Coral of Texas. He is known as the Candy Man or the Pied Piper because his family owned a candy company and he would literally lure children with free candy. In the early 1970s, Coral began luring young teen boys with alcohol and promises of a place to party. Once they climbed into his van, he would abduct them. Then once he got them back to his house, he would tie his victims to a plywood torture board essentially a longboard with a hole drilled in each corner for binding. Coral would then go on to physically and sexually assault boys that he held captive for days. He eventually groomed two older teen victims into being his accomplices and then had them bring other young men back to his house. Coral harmed at least 28 males between 1970 and 1973. And in 1973, one of his accomplices, fearing for his own life while being tortured, fatally shot Coral and led police to where the bodies were buried. There's a lot to unpack in this story. Yeah, Um, I I love when we were talking to Tim and Lance, how, you know, again, without getting into details, you had mentioned it's, there was almost like an experimental factor here. Like he was experimenting with the human body. And so that, that along with when you learn what some of the details are, really, really, I mean, like you said, just easy diagnosis in hindsight of sexual sadism. Yeah. I mean, you know, we look for those traits in young people that is the the wildly waving red flags. If someone's torturing animals and it's not just torture to a child like that, that has that particular makeup, it's experimentation. It's like, I want to yeah. see, I, you know, because they are so disconnected from the concept of consciousness and life. They're experimenting with the bodies of animals. I want to see yeah. what's the mechanism in there. How does it work? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but think that there was sort of a delayed version of this with Coral yeah, as he agree. engaged. So now we also had some really 
great research on this, of course, with the big names in this area, even going back, this is what, 30 years, but this is a really some good points that Hazelwood, Warren and Dietz made in the steps to partner indoctrination for sexual sadism. So bringing others into your nefarious plans, into your murderous plans, into your sadistic plans. Number one is love bombing, basically showering with affection and attention and usually physical gifts. Coral was known to, you know, not only give them candy, but then introduce them to alcohol. And he was also supplying drugs to many of the kids that he brought in. Then sexual activities beyond the comfort zone. So first get them high, get their inhibitions down, and then slowly increase the exposure to sexual acts that the individuals would then get, I would never say if they're actually getting more and more comfortable to, but right. they're not protesting. Maybe they've become numb to the process. That's like one of the classic things. classic grooming for your victim. It's grooming, You're absolutely. grooming them into a partner. Right. And they're not even, it's not necessarily instilling in that young individual an interest in that activity, but you're numbing them to the trauma. They are switching yeah. off a part of their brains in order to maintain the more positive aspects of their relationship is like, I want to keep the positive parts of the grooming where I'm showered with affection. So I'm going to turn off my perception of all this other stuff that really makes me uncomfortable. Then number three, the unwanted sexual activities now start to dominate the relationship. Number four, classic IPV cycle of violence type stuff. The perpetrator starts to create a bubble, which increases social isolation, which then by that mechanism increases the perpetrator's control over Mm -hmm. the people that they brought in their periphery. And then that moves into our final part, the actual torture, captivity, and the scripting of these particular activities. As Coral found his stride, he started repeating a lot of the same things, using the torture board, using the same methods that had worked for him, including changing his location all mm -hmm. the time. He always knew there was something at the back of his head that like any one of these kids could talk. So I need to constantly be on the move in order to maintain this need I have, this drive yeah. I have. Yeah. I'm so glad they looked into this all these years ago, because I think that's one of the biggest questions that comes up when you have a case of serial sexual sadism with other perpetrators involved, because one, we're like, well, what's the case like, or what are the chances that two sexual sadists are going to find each other? And that happens, right? You have the toolbox killers and right. others. And then a lot of these end up being romantic partners. So women being involved in it, as we covered with the girl in the box case with our Stockholm syndrome episodes. So it, or Carla Homolka, like that yeah, oh, really famous, famous case. Yeah. So, you know, even your mention of classic intimate partner violence techniques here, it just completely makes sense. So I have an example that really shows how far someone would go to inflict psychological terror on another human. From 1971 to 1983, Robert Hansen abducted and assaulted as many as 30 victims near Anchorage, Alaska, primarily exotic dancers or sex workers that he assaulted but released, warning them never to tell. However, Hansen abducted 17 other women between the ages of 17 and 41 and flew them out to the Alaskan wilderness in his small private aircraft. There, he stripped them naked and told them that they were his prey. Hansen would order the women to run so that he could hunt them down with a hunting knife or big game rifle literally stalking these freezing, terrified women. It was this practice that was his eventual downfall. In 1983, teen captive Cindy Paulson escaped prior to the flight and managed to contact the police. After his arrest, Hansen received a 461-year prison sentence and died in prison in 2014. So I remember reading about this probably too early than I should have, <laughs> but... You know, to me, this was always just the ultimate psychological torture. I mean, there's so many cases that we could name, but this one has such a creepy element to it. And I mean, I'm just going to segue into our entertainment piece here. There's a movie about Robert Hansen that's done really well. So it's called The Frozen Ground, and it's a 2013 American thriller directed and written by Scott Walker. So it stars Nicolas Cage. John Cusack plays Robert Hansen. Vanessa Hutchins plays the girl that gets away 
She's phenomenal in it. And 50 Cent is in it as well. But it's based on the crimes of Robert Hansen and the film depicts an Alaskan state trooper, which is Nick Cage, seeking to apprehend Hansen by partnering with a young woman who escaped from his clutches. But it's good. I highly recommend it. I totally stumbled upon it. I was like, what? They made a movie about this with Nick Cage and John Cusack? <laughs> and it's good. It's good. Yeah, it probably, you know, who knows? It might maybe there's really interesting factors that go into why something is successful or not successful at that time. Yeah. You know, this is a really challenging story. I would say also that there has been or actually there have been been several adaptations or versions of this using humans as prey like you know where it's like welcome you know a woman young woman there's a recent one of a woman being welcomed into a rich family she's marrying into a rich family and the tradition is that on the night before the wedding they all go on a hunt and go after each other and whoever survives Uh and you know so there's this trope that unfortunately i think tends to divert away from the actual horror of these events. Oh, yeah. With John Leguizamo, the pest. Isn't that yes. one where they're like hunting him like a bunch yeah. of rich white guys? Yeah. The- yeah. It's it's one of those that's that's really disturbing, especially when you know that there was someone out there that really, really yeah. engaged in this behavior. The interesting entertainment blend of a true historical character that was done in the ongoing series of American Horror Story. This was the year that it the season was Hotel and they integrated many characters, the those killers that were stuck at the hotel and couldn't leave. Yep. And then in the universe of American Horror Story, he has a trope that all the spirits can actually travel on Halloween. So they would have these sort of get together dinners where all of the most famous killers would meet at the hotel for a dinner. And in the fifth season that was entitled Hotel, it centered around the Hotel Cortez in LA, which was, you know, clearly based on the Hotel Cecil. In, in so many ways, right? And it's the scene of many disturbing and paranormal events. And it's overseen by this very strange, dark, weird staff. It's based, again, like we said, on the Cecil Hotel and the, itself is marked by deaths and tragedies that all of us in the true crime genre have come to know very well. And the ensemble cast includes the regulars, Kathy Bates, Sarah Paulson, Evan Peters, Wes Bentley, Matt Bomer, Chloe Sevigny, or Sevigny, sorry, Sevigny. Chloe Sevigny, Dennis O'Hare, who's fantastic, Cheyenne Jackson, Angela Bassett, and of course, Lady Gaga. Ryan Murphy says that he took inspiration from the Chicago-based serial killer, H.H. H. Holmes, who built the infamous Murder Hotel in Chicago during the World's Fair. He opened the hotel under the guise of housing visitors, but in reality, it was his own personal victim trap and moneymaker. He was a killer that was had built his own like house of horrors with internal rooms that had no windows, rooms that had chutes to a basement where he could dispose of bodies, of hidden tunnels, torture chambers. And it was only discovered after a number of travelers were reported missing. And Evan Peters plays an, a character that is inspired by H.H. H. Holmes. And they've been trying to make the Holmes story into a movie for literally decades now. Leonardo, yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio was was attached at one times. So it was like Castle in the White or White White oh, Castle yeah. in the City or something that like that. never happened, huh? I don't think no. we need that. We probably don't need that. I don't think we need it. Yeah. Lastly, if you want to watch an educational film on sexual sadism, please check out a documentary by Dr. Anna Salter, who has worked extensively with and researched violent sex offenders for decades. I mean, she's incredible really with the work that she's done since the 80s. And it's called Listening to Sex Offenders, Part 2, Sadistic versus Non-Sadistic Sex Offenders. You can find it on YouTube. Maybe the whole thing, maybe in clips. I'm not sure. Scott, I still have a DVD of this in my desk at work. She's amazing. I, yeah. and I, I wish she, I mean, she probably is at an age now where she's retired or less active, but this is somebody who is so wildly intelligent and mm-hmm. so smart and so educated and really just opened the door and used her unbelievable talents to get offenders to talk about yes. how they groom and perpetrate on their victims. And it's 
it's groundbreaking actually it's hard to some of the stuff that she gets them to say is very hard to listen to but it yep. is fascinating it, it really is I don't know how much she's working these days her website is very good and occasionally you know she, it sounds like she contributes to interviews and things like that but I'll put that in our show notes as well but yeah full warning that you're going to hear some really disturbing things while watching these offenders talk about it but really if if you want to sort of cut through all the bullshit this is is direct as you're going to get this information so absolutely yeah yeah well i know on the shorter side but i think that's the perfect amount to tolerate a topic like this right it's a <laughs> lot otherwise it would have just been you know putting details in there that didn't need to be in there so i hope this was a good length to just kind of digest the information and the research and get you more interested in what else we should talk about that fractures off from this. So Scott nicely has paired our next episode with this topic in a way that, again, is going to be respectful to everyone and the victims in the case. So with that, Scott, anything to end us on? That's it. We thank you so much and welcome to all the new listeners. Our exposure on three podcasts that have happened recently in the last two months has made a, a, a huge impact on our listener base. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you like it. If you want to give us a further check out or would like to have an ad-free experience, please join us on Patreon, which will then allow you to meet us on our Discord channel, which is a ton of fun and very stimulating. Absolutely. In a good way, not stimulating in a bad way, stimulating in a good way. No, not at all. All right, everyone. Well, we will see you in our next episode of LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, guys. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. <laughs>